Okay, hello, I'm Simon King and this is Nature Space with Hayes and today I'm taking a deep dive in search of the bigger picture with a real life explorer, a wonderful chap I'm looking at right now and this is uh, a polar export, uh, expert and broadcaster Paul Rose. It's good to see you Paul and uh, thank you for making space for Nature Space and your busy, busy day. Hi Simon, it's great to be here, thanks very much and uh, I'm speaking to you from home in Switzerland where it feels beautifully cold today and the snow is just above us, so I'm about to polish up the skis. <laughs> I, I've already said to Paul, really, and I'm, in some of our podcasts, we've just recorded the audio only. Uh, we're, we're recording audio and visual today, and I'm really pleased we are, because one, you look you look to me like, you know, when I think of an explorer, I'm thinking of you, and that's... That, <laughs> but the backdrop as well, the background, that's just oh, yeah. perfect. Not sure of gear. <laughs> it's, it's, it's better than mine, and, and that's the other thing as well, is, is that when I was... When I was reading, and, and this will this will uh, come to light w as we chat a little bit more uh, over the next half hour or so. But uh, Paul, the, the things you've done been amazing, really. So when I introduce you as as a real life explorer, polar expert, and broadcaster, I kind of feel like I've shortchanged you a little bit, really. But we'll, we'll we'll unpack all that as we get on. But you know, my team came to me. Angela came to me and said that uh, she thought you'd make a great guest for the podcast. And I, I read your website. Uh, bio and really uh, you know I was, I was blown away I don't want you to go you know because this is this is amazing really you know we and when we set up nature space with hate this is exactly um I didn't know of, of, of you of the, at the time although it turns out I have actually seen you know I've seen you on tv so it's interesting isn't it uh, I, I thought I didn't but I did but it turns out really that you know this is exactly what we set the podcast up for to talk to people like you uh, who are out there uh, and 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 doing great things, and at the sharp end, really the front end of this. So when I say a deep dive, that will that will come clear because there's there's there's, there's something to that. Because you know, for example, you know, uh, you ran the U.S. Navy drive uh, diver training and were base commander. Is it is it Rothera? Ro uh, yeah, well, it's pronounced Rothera. That's right. Rothera. Yeah. yeah. Rothera research station in Antarctica, and perhaps you know a little later we can talk about that really. But first. I thought really if we can, if, if you don't mind, you know, I thought we could talk a little bit more about your fascinating journey, really. And, and what do I need to know and, and, and our listeners need to know uh, about where it all started? I mean, for example, you know, did, did the 10-year-old Paul uh, growing up in Romford in Essex, you know, did he ever dream that he'd be an explorer one day? That's a good one, Simon. And I think it is important to understand people's journeys uh, because we were all different aren't we and for me when I was 10 11 um, I was with a, a bunch of what we used to call Herberts my Herbert mates I mean we were a classic group of five or six of us um, we hated school none of us could really do it um, teachers were the enemy and the more in trouble we got the happier we were uh, <laughs> in that stupid juvenile sort of race to the bottom and uh, me in particular, I couldn't do the bookwork. I was struggling to read and go from the blackboard to the book to the learning. And uh, I was just, you know, bored to death, anxious to be out. And um, and with no imagination whatsoever, I can still smell that, that paint on the overheated Victorian radiator I used to sit next to. And um, we just wanted to be out. I just wanted to be out. And I discovered at that time, uh, 11 plus was coming up which I had no interest in. Um, and you can imagine, in the race to the bottom, it wasn't cool to be interested in it anyway. So me and my mates, we were all sort of certain that we were going to fail this thing called the 11 plus. Um, and I was going home 
into the flat and watching Jacques Cousteau on television. Oh. Doing these amazing journeys around the world on Calypso with his team. Hans and Lottie Haas, who were working underwater, taking those what to you and I now would look quite grainy black and white shark images. But in those days, we're like, whoa, look at these shark pictures. And then they were real heroes. But then the fictional hero, Mike Nelson, who played in Sea Hunt, you know, it was Lloyd Bridges who played this underwater, cat, you know, real character. He was having proper blokes adventures underwater. And <laughs> I loved him, you know, everything about him. You know, he was, he was, you know, rescuing pilots from crashed airplanes in the sea. He was rescuing men from flooded mines. All the beautiful women in the world wanted Mike to teach him to dive. And I was, you know, struggling like hell. I had no idea about how diving or how to get into it, but it just had the appeal. I mean, I had no family or friends. I didn't know what diving was all about, but it was the dream of being a diver. You asked about my dream. It was the dream of being a diver, and I had no idea what it meant, except I somehow thought I'm going to be a diver. And, and, and then, oddly enough, what made that happen was when I was 14, again, uh, you know, failing in school at Sutton Secondary Modern, um, a geography teacher took us to the Brecon Beacons. And we did, you know, the, the classic thing, Outward Bound, you know, Youth Hostel um, in Merthyr Tidfil. We climbed everything, walked everything, jumped in the rivers, camped, did all the kinds of navigation and walking in the big hills and climbing. And I had no idea I was doing that mathematics when I was looking at a map and compass. But I had an innate sense of how to do it and i didn't know anything about mountaineering but i had a good sense for what might be a safe route up and a safe route down and i absolutely loved those weeks and i can still remember now the the joy of doing what we used to call the community chores you know cleaning up in the in in the hut and uh, organizing the waterproofs at the end of the day when the other kids were uh, keen to just go and have a cup of tea i was really enjoying doing the you know the sort of the community chore side of things and I can still feel myself peeling potatoes in the rain, uh, on, <laughs> you know, and uh, into a bucket and, and thinking I never felt so alive. And, and this was what made me realize I could do this stuff outside. And that gave me the propulsion to become a diver. So it was that confidence in, in, in this man, Mr. Gray, the science teacher and geography teacher, if... Um, when, when or if time travel is ever invented, I'll either go back to him and thank him or bring him here to thank him. I was stupidly too, too proud, useless young teenager to, to have, the, uh, have the guts to thank him. And it's a big regret. Yeah, I can see that. It's interesting because it, so it's, in a way it's education or it's, it's good teaching uh, that, that spotted something or at least allowed and unfolded a new world to you, which... You know this 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 diving obviously you know opened up not only a, a world above sea level but below as well. But you, I, I think, I think perhaps you know. We, I mean, we all have regrets, don't we? Really, we're, we're things that we could have done and should have done, and, and, and maybe people we could have thanked. But I guess in a way, we'll, we maybe you can say something about this a little later. But you know, I know that you you do uh, you do kind of bit to um, lead a student uh, led challenges and uh, and and you're awakening. You know, through education, really giving your time to young explorers who, who are taking that journey uh, with, you know, with you as an expedition leader and so on, whether that's virtually or in person. In fact, why don't we talk about that? Because perhaps, you know, for a moment, if you don't mind, we, we're, we're jumping ahead. But, you know, you, I guess anyone who's, who's an explorer wants others to explore the world, too. And you're using this 
it's a wonderful experience, not only today, to talk to somebody like me who has a very bare wall and, <laughs> and is now questioning what I've been yeah. doing for the last five or ten years. But uh, actually, you know, you're sharing that with others and, and right at the beginning of their journey. So, uh, and this is through National Geographic, I think, as well. Well, it is all kinds. I mean, um, I'm currently, uh, well, for the last nine years, I've been the uh, uh, expedition leader and head of expeditions for Pristine Seas Project at uh, National Geographic. And a big element of that is engaging the public. I mean, we're, we're busy. We've had uh, 34 expeditions. We've created 25 marine protected areas, totaling over 7 million square kilometres. Uh, so it's about the size of India. You know, we're, we're busy uh, uh, on a mission to do our bit to get 30% of the ocean protected by 2030. So we've got the science figured out. We know how to tell those stories uh, with media and tell those stories to decision makers with very targeted information based on science and the local work they're doing. But we also can't miss the opportunity to take the young ones with us. And one mm. of the greatest things we do on the, on the things when we're at sea, on the expeditions at sea, is we use something called Explorer Classrooms. And I absolutely love it. Uh, we, you know, we're there. They're run by a colleague of ours called Joe Grabowski, um, Explorer Classrooms, and within the team at National Geographic. And here we are at sea, and sometimes if the... If the bandwidth is a bit is, isn't so good, maybe because we're rolling around a lot or because we're in a high latitude and we haven't quite got the signal, it means I'm doing it on my on my phone, you know. So so there I am with the with the phone on a tripod and I can see loads and loads of little tiny thumbnails. And behind me, I've got whoever's available on deck at the time. You know, I may have the captain, the cook, some of the engineers, uh, my science team, some of the media team, boat drivers, as many as possible with me. And for 45 minutes, we communicate with all these schools. And Joe is like a bit of an international orchestra conductor. He introduces us and I'll, I'll say, how many schools we got on there, Joe? And he might go, oh, we've got 50 schools from all around the world. Plus, we're live on YouTube. So we might be engaging thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Plus, of course, all the YouTube knock-ons and social media knock-ons and global reach. And it's so much fun because you, you can hear Joe saying, um, right, we've done the introduction. Um, Mrs. Smith in Kansas, are you there? And then you can hear the kids and one, one, one from each class gets to ask a question. And the questions are brilliant. They can be funny. You get someone coming up, little Paul Rose when he was seven, you, know, you can imagine him. He comes to the camera and says, hey, can you eat submarine sandwiches in your submarine? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then we say, yeah, you can eat anything you like, but you can't make any mess in there. Um, <laughs> or indeed, someone say, what's the, what's the, you know, what have you found today? What are you doing? And deep in-depth science questions. So that's a wonderful, you know, one of the best value 45 minutes we can do. That's just one good example. And of course, when people like me are on in these wild, challenging, remote places, we, we do have a responsibility to come back with stories and, yes. and, 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 and broadcast and, and share those important messages. And the best value we can do is engaging the young ones. So, you know, with National Geographic, um, which is global, of course, and then uh, UK-based, the Royal Geographical Society, they're my two main angles for getting good messages out. And any time there's something going on with young ones, I jump because that's where we should be putting our effort. 
Yes, so so you've become the modern day Jack Cousteau, really, haven't you? Because I remember that. I remember coming home from school and watching, as you say, you know, and 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 I, you know, I wasn't. It didn't make me think I'm going to be a diver, though. But it, it did grip me. I remember being gripped by it because, and and these things are so in those formative years are so important, aren't they? Because it won't switch the light on for everybody. But I guess it all it all depends what the light really is. You know, it doesn't. We don't. If every if we're all explorers, then that's that in, in its way is is not helpful too. But we we do need somebody. You know, some people have got to have you know walls that are, are not quite like mine, uh, and and we need people like you. You know, but every video I've watched of yours has made me feel very cold <laughs> because it looks freezing. But that said, you know, I've I've also seen these videos where there's you know you are you you're, you're moments away from polar bears from sharks groupers and things like that and that must be incredible for you well i think what it's all about is that when when we're in the field i mean my love um is this sense of meeting scientists and science teams and understanding their hypothesis these big uh, hairy challenging risky ideas with, that have usually been developed in a laboratory and take that idea and convert it into icebreakers and helicopters and ski-equipped airplanes and boats and divers and submarines and talented teams all over the world. And so because I'm in the pursuit of science, I'm not a scientist. It's science support that I do. Um, and there's a big team of science support globally. I mean, scientists need people like you and me, Simon. They need, you know, electricians and plumbers and boat drivers and van drivers and generator mechanics and diesel mechanics and cooks and doctors and you name it. There's a whole run of support staff yes. um, holding up science, around about three support staff to every scientist globally. So in that, because I've got the passion for the science, but I'm not a scientist, it means that when I'm in these powerful places, I'm not there just for some um, TikTok or Instagram video moment. I'm there in something that I truly believe is making a big difference. So that's what gives you the enthusiasm to say, you know, you're right, Simon, it's really cold today. You know, <laughs> oh, I'm just so, God, we're hanging around. There's no movement. Something's being measured or filmed or we're, we're a long time on a deep, cold dive. You can't help but say, I am just flipping freezing. And that's the <laughs> way, you know, but because we're not just there for that TikTok moment or whatever you call it. We're there for something we believe in. We do it. And that's the beautiful thing of leading teams like us. You know, you're leading a team of very passionate, dedicated, uh, highly qualified explorers. And I like that feeling of being an explorer. And I like it when young ones, you know, we, we, we naturally are curious when we're, when we're born and we grow up as kids being very curious and interested in things. And I think by engaging young ones in the adventure and exploration, particularly with a science angle, um, we, we don't um, hold them back in any way. We show them that we need them out there. We need their opinions yes. out there. And we encourage them to do their bit to sort of ground truth the planet. Yeah. And I love the the fact that, and I'm a big believer, you're leaning on an open door here because against an open door because I'm a big believer in art and science. You know, it works together. We have a veterinary professor and, and he's such a wonderful chap, but, he, you know, he too acknowledges, you know, the the art side is so supportive in that search for science. And sometimes, you know, it, when we say science, it can switch people off because they think, I, I, I'm not doing very well in my science uh, exams or I don't enjoy biology, I don't enjoy this. But actually, you know, what we also don't want is, is for people to think that, that, that this, that nature 
is excluding them then because they don't understand you know the science behind it all it would be great if they did because then you know they may be able to help our search to 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 you know be better uh, protectors of the planet and so on but actually passion i don't know i think passion is a huge driver yeah, exactly uh, and, and and that's the thing, because when people are interested in science, and I love when I um, uh, do big big talks, whether they're virtual or, or hopefully in person, um, I often say to the young ones, uh, maybe some of them are at that age, they're just getting to graduate from university and wondering about that first job. And here they are with a science degree or an arts degree, whatever it is, but how do we get that first job? I'm interested in, in science and I'm interested in uh, global issues. How do I get to be part of it? Yes. With my brand new shiny degree, and I always steer them to science support work. You know, I say, well, yeah, you may have your marine biology degree, but do you like to do carpentry, or are you also a sort of electrician or dry, boat driver? All these other things. Say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good boat driver and I'm a good lab technician. So I steer them to um, science support work in amazing places um, where they're not necessarily the. Uh, the chief scientist, you can't come out of university and suddenly be a chief scientist. But yes. guess what? You're working at the front line of exciting, uh, vital field sciences, a science as maybe a lab technician or a boat driver. <laughs> That's great advice. And, and, yeah. and actually, you know, we should say that there, there, there will be people listening to this, uh, hopefully, who, who may be studying, in, studying at university at the moment. Um, they are involved in, in the sciences. They're looking at natural history. They've got a passion for the things that we've been talking about, but wh where and how do they get started? So that's great advice. C can we talk? I think that will probably will be a great, because talking about jobs, uh, how do you become the base commander of, of, of somewhere like Rotherham Research Station? You know, can you tell us a little bit about it and how that came about? Because I understand that this is, this is more than a just a, a destination for you, isn't it? I think, it, you know, it's got a lot more, you know, yeah. sentimental value than that for you. Yeah, you're right. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, there's a lot of me in Antarctica. Um, there, there is a natural progression of uh, mountain guides and, and field assistants that work in uh, temperate zones and then uh, high latitude mountains and the greater ranges to then move to the polar regions. It's sort of the next sort of gradual step. You know, I'm working here, I'm working there, I'm working in more distant places. And then where are the big um, uh, distant remote challenges? Of course, that are polar regions. And that was me. I was in the States uh, working for the uh, U.S. Navy, running the dive program. I was a commercial diver working for U.S. Steel, Gary, Indiana. And I became a mountain guide, too. So I was guiding mostly in the North Cascades, Alaska and Ecuador. And... Um, one day I met someone coming down Denali, Mount McKinley, who told me about um, the British Antarctic Survey, and I'd never heard of them, but I knew I wanted to work in the polar regions. So when we came back to England, um, I applied to be the diving officer, but um, it was a wintering post, and um, I couldn't put the time into it. But he said, we do have um, field assistant posts, you know, a mountain guide, polar guide posts. So I went, applied, got the job, and my first uh, job with British Antarctic Survey was over at McMurdo on the American side, working in Mary Bird Land and Mount Erebus. Then the next year, I was on the uh, Antarctic Peninsula on a wonderful geology project. And then the next year after that, I was back on Mount Erebus working for NASA, uh, leading the NASA team with their Mars lander robot on uh, Mount Erebus, which is Antarctica's active volcano. 
And I got the call, uh, would I like to consider um, being the base commander at Rothera Base? And I jumped at it. So I went from Mount Erebus all the way around the world back to Antarctica and started in my role as the base commander at Rothera Research Station. I did that for um, 10 years. Best job on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and talking of planets, I think you described it at some point, like it looking like a scene from Star Wars. Is that so? It's, <laughs> so probably no. in, the, in the galaxy, in the universe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, Rothera Base is beautiful. They call it Starbase. It is a beautiful research station, arguably the most beautiful research station in the universe. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a hub. It's the main hub for, for all of the uh, uh, Antarctic research that goes on through the British Antarctic Survey. Terrific place to be. And I was very fortunate to be there during a real key development period when we um, sadly uh, had to get rid of the dogs in 1994. I'd been the base commander since 92. And then we developed the um, uh, laboratory even further, the air support, the diving, and all the technical aspects of the base and the capacity uh, through my years. So it was a very satisfying uh, growth uh, period. And uh, I've since been back um, working for the Americans, uh, mostly in the dry valleys. Um, so, yeah, there's something about Antarctica. And as um, Frank Wilde always used to say, you know, it's, you can never um, get rid of the little white voices that call you back. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Can, can you do as a fa Can you kind of set the scene for us, really? Because it obviously, you, you know, it, it strikes me that it's it's something that we. we I mean, we the TV shows, you know, David Attenborough and so on, are wonderful. They show these places and they show them in such high definition, and you, you feel like you're there. But uh, you know, what we don't, you know, what is it like to be there, and what what, what must it be like for you know the collection of people and so on? Can you talk mm. to us about people, maybe the climate as well? What, what what does it feel like when you're, you know, how bracing is it when you walk into that type of? Is it minus twenty? But then the wind chill must be. God, I mean, that must be the beginning of of feeling cold. Well, you're right to talk about uh, people, Simon. Thank you, because the this it's an it's a very powerful community because. Everybody that works there is at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's pilots, divers, scientists, support teams, whoever it is, everyone's at the top of their game. And yet we've got to live with each other. Yeah. So there's a lovely bit of the selection that goes on where you could imagine interviewing people thinking, oh, yeah, she's flipping brilliant and she's great and he's great. Well, wow, absolutely brilliant. Hugely technical. But you think, wow, can you live with these people, though? So that's the thing we've always got to ask, because you're living in very close quarters, um, sometimes under a lot of stress. And so we would always choose people that were easy to live with at the top of their game, and they're not easy to find. <laughs> mm. So then that does mean when you arrive on the base, you're in arriving a base. It's not sort of this egotistical, clicky group of experts. It's a group of experts who are fun to be with and live with, which is a very rare Community, you've got stacks of them in it. Rotherham Bay, you've got over 100 in the summer and 20-something in the winter. And when we're on the base, whether it's getting food in the galley or being in the library or uh, using the gym or playing music or in our workspaces, we're in very modern, comfortable setting with a great view out the window, admittedly, but we're in comfortable, warm, happy, doing everything these days, a good internet connection and you know, feeling great. But when you open the door to go outside, it's the same Antarctica that's always been there. It's the same Antarctica that you read about in the historical, the same days of, of Scott and Amundsen. And you go, oh, yeah, and, and Mawson and all the big stories. of. So that's always 
either exciting if you're prepared for it or brings you up short if you're new to Antarctica and you've stepped outside in your shorts and T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because to listen, that's really, really helpful because I've got this... You, you were... You, you were lulling me into this false sense of security there. I'm in the gym, I'm in the canteen, and, and, and interestingly enough, I can see where, where your advice there. You know, if, if I, where do I start? Get involved, get in that gym, you know, get in that, in that you know, get into, into the canteen, you know, start, listen to people, observe the same way we talk about listening and observing wildlife. Don't get into an argument with these people, you know, because they know so much. Listen to them and then form your, your, your you know, your, your, your own points of view and so on. But just uh, soak it up. But then I'm opening the door and realising that everything there is that's man-made. Now I've got this harsh contrast. But switch off the air conditioning, switch off the, uh, the heating. And, and, and it is, it's brutal isn't it it yes, must be same the funny thing is though you know it's a bit like when you go to a high ski resort and you've got a day where um you know it's hard to believe the temperature maybe you've had one or two uh, easy ski runs or walks or you've just got off the lift and you look at the temperature and think well i can't believe it it says minus five there and yet with no wind and a reflective heat from the sun people are hanging about drinking tea and coffee with t-shirts on you know you've seen it yourself ski boots pair of pants T-shirt, sunglasses, working on your suntan. You think, I can't believe it's minus 10. But then as soon as you go in the shade, it really is. You go, wow, yes. it's really cold. Well, that's what happens um, in the Antarctic. You know, you, you know, I've got loads of memories of running on the runway um, uh, or hanging about outside drinking a cup of tea, uh, literally with shorts and a T-shirt sometimes. You think, wow, yes. this is unbelievable. But um, as you well know, it doesn't take much. You get, you get the cloud coming over the sun, or wind picks up the snow and instantly it's very, very cold again. Uh, where Rothera is, um, it does benefit from a moderating influence by the, of the sea. So it doesn't get super, super cold. I mean, at Rothera, you might get minus 20 something in the winter. But mostly during the summer, we've got days above freezing, uh, which is a surprise uh, these days, but not these days, I suppose. And you can regularly work at zero or minus five. Whereas my days on Mount Erebus... Um, much further south, and of course also Mary Birdland, it's not unusual to be working always in minus 20 and then days that are much colder. Yeah. Right, so talking of seas and, and talking of the, because obviously we've, we've, we've opened the door from the gym, we've had a nice meal, we've, we, 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 the difference I guess with the skiing is you're, you're there to do a job, you're there to work, so it'd be, it'd be interesting to talk about that, but first I, I want to bring us, if we can, bring our listeners to this, you know, when I was doing some research, I noticed that there was one diving uh, expedition that, 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 you know, became a little more hair-raising than, uh, than you, I think, anticipated, and you came up beneath something a little unexpected. Do you, do you mind talking about that? No, I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, um, you know, we look at icebergs these days, and it's very easy to look at these, these beautiful, um, you know, ice formations, and we can tell the story how they were formed and where they come from and where they're going and you know, from the Titanic story, from the, you know, uh, Greenland icebergs to what happens in Antarctica and these big ones that we see on the news sometimes where someone will say a whopping great iceberg has broken off from Antarctica. It's about the size of New York or Wales and you'll see planes flying around it filming. So we think of icebergs that way. Um, but they're hazardous things to be around. They're um, very unstable. And um, what happens is when they're frozen in in the winter, 
um, all the stuff above the water is being eroded by the wind. So it's basically unstable. It's more buoyancy underneath than there is on top. Um, and as soon as it gets freed by the ice, when it melts, these things begin to roll and spin around. And you've seen uh, probably films of that, which means they're very uneven, uh, but nevertheless beautiful shapes. Well, one great day in uh, Antarctica, I was diving, looking for some lost science equipment um, with another diver. And uh, she was new to Antarctica, but a very, very experienced diver. We couldn't find this piece of equipment at 40 meters. And we we said, well, we just can't find it. We'll come up. And it's cold water. You know, you're diving in minus one, minus one and a half water. It's not frozen because of the salt content, but it's very cold water, even when you were in dry suit. Time to come up. And instead of coming up through 40 meters of water, we came up about 25 meters or something. And surprise, surprise, we banged our heads. And we banged our heads on this lump of ice, which was a funny shape which I thought might be the edge of a small iceberg, but it turned out to be about the centre of an enormous iceberg that had let go from the pack and had drifted over our position. So we followed our line, which was to the surface, to a buoy, and swam along that line, come out a little bit, and it was totally depressed by the berg. It was there, still under the ice, with seemingly no exit. You know, where is the surface? So we spent some time wondering which way to go. We carried on in that same direction. But there are funny things underneath those bergs. They're not just flat. Some of them are. But this one was had real like valleys and holes. And so you see something up. They go, ah, that's the way up. And we go up and bang our heads again. And you're still under the ice. And so then descending. And um, we slowly kept going. And, of course, you're using your air. It's the end of the dive. You're very tired. No idea, really, um, if this is the right way or not. And then just by sheer luck, when we were down to the very last bit of air, we popped out. <laughs> Lucky. Is, you, you, you make it sound like it's all in a day's work, but it must have been so disorientating, wasn't it? I mean, did, it, did, did you think, was there a point where you thought this may not end well? Well, it was pretty rough because when you, once you reach that point where you think, well, you know, we hope we get out of here, and you realise that the air consumption... I looked at, I looked at the, the other diver, and the great thing was, you know, I was managing my air consumption very well, being slow, very easy, uh, taking time, not reacting with panic. And then I looked at her, and she had a great look in her eye, and the look basically said, you don't need to worry about me. Really? You know, but she wasn't breathing hard like a maniac or anything like that, as I yeah. wouldn't expect she would. But I just looked, and I still remember that look. You don't need yeah. to worry about me, mate. We'll get through. And we both plodded on and uh, found our way out. <laughs> I guess at that point, you know, training, experience, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and trust must just be everything, really. You know, exactly. if one person panics, I mean, if both yeah. panic, you, you, that's, that's game over. But if one does, it could... Yeah. You know, it just doesn't bear thinking about. So we're well, always careful when we dive around icebergs. <laughs> I can imagine because I suppose when you're when you're looking up, this the lights. The, is it still lights? It still feel light then that you can still see the, the the sun kind of beating through and so on. So that's yeah, well, where the disorientation comes from. That's it. When the ice is thin, you you know it looks like it's the surface, but because it, is, it wasn't a few times. Yeah. So you were at this point, you were cursing Jack Cousteau. <laughs> <laughs> Just about. What am I if doing? I paid you know? more attention in my maths classes. Exactly. Yeah. I'd be up with the scientists. <laughs> yeah, I wish I wished I'd spent more time at school. <laughs>
But it, it's it, it's in those moments though things change, do they? I suppose you know. Do, I think do, so. do, do, well, I think powerful moments like that are uh, are significant to us, um, and 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 I, and I do believe we need them in our lives. You know, physically powerful moments because there's if you get through them, um, as you know many of us do, it's a bit like having a a really amazing uh, marathon run or a, yeah. a long distance swim or a triathlon or a, a dance competition or something. There is that great sense of achievement. Um, I don't think necessarily it's a good thing for you to go out and hunt these sort of egotistical, yes. uh, crazy challenges just to just to just to make an Instagram post. But I think if you're doing a job and you feel it's within your capabilities, then when things go pear shaped, even if you've done all your risk assessments and all your training and things go wrong, it's great to feel that within your physical and training capacity, you can get through it. That's a great feeling for everybody. Yeah, well, it's it's really good of you to share that. And I'm I'm also thinking now because we talk, had a little talk before we you know hit the record button. We were talking about what you could see outside. You 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 feeding the birds, which is brilliant to hear <laughs> over over there in Switzerland. You're dead and, right. Yeah. <laughs> what does it look? What what birds are you seeing at the moment? What, what, well, um... we're lucky because you know we, we we live up here in the Jura, which is um, uh, it's eleven hundred meters. Um, so it's a bit like a very big lake district, really, above above Geneva. Um, very beautiful. And if I look out the window, you can look and there's there's the lake and there's Mont Blanc over there and the whole, you know, Alps. Um, but right within us, we're in the on the edge of this lovely forest. So uh, we get lots of birds and to enjoy them and, um, you know, to have them close by. We've got a couple of bird feeders. <laughs> they just couldn't resist it. So we've got a couple of those things that have the balls in. And one of these very lovely Japanese things that came as a gift that you put the seed in. And it's just great. It means you get the woodpecker around and the blue jays, robins and yellow tits and all kinds of amazing birds. And a, a, a good a good friend of ours, Andy Schofield from the RSPB, gave us the uh, uh, Collins Book of Birds. So it gives us our chance to sort of understand what birds we have around us. And it's a lovely interaction we have here with these with these bird seeds. Yeah, so we... We nip out every once in a while and buy these um, huge bags of bird seed and these boxes of, of, of balls and, and get them out there. We quite like the blue jays on the balls because they're big enough and muscly enough that they don't peck at the balls. They come in and wreck everything and fly away with the whole ball, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Would you argue that, um, you know, feeding the birds, for example, it's kind of a good entry point for people you know where i mean you know some people we, we during lockdown you know we we recruited uh, or we invited you know people to come and write for us on our blogs and, and margaret emerson recently you may have heard she, she recorded a lovely podcast she became one of our armchair naturalists so you know she um an ex-bbc meteorologist as well so she 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 was brilliant at it because we talked about the weather as well but, but you know back to thinking about Introducing people to nature and wildlife, would you argue it's a good way, you know, to get people, get ch children involved in, in understanding, watching, observing nature? Feeding oh, the most definitely. I mean, it really is. Well, f firstly, I mean, it's, it, it's, in our, it's in our human nature to be interested in wildlife. Everybody likes seeing, you know, birds and foxes and, you know, pets, dogs and cats. People love animals in general. It's a, it's a natural reaction. And birds, you know, they have... 
they have a a thing in, in the UK, don't we? We have a thing about birds. I mean, I think the RSPB Citizen Science annual event is the largest in Britain by a long shot because um, we all like to know what's happening with the birds. You know, why are there more of these ones this year? Why have those ones left a bit early this year? Are they going to come early? All the different numbers of arrivals and, and comings and goings of the different species, plus the understanding of how they interact with each other is a great entry point. It's a great sort of like common denominator to nature. So it's not just looking at birds thinking, wow, there's a beautiful woodpecker. And isn't it amazing how he looks around either side of the tree looking to see what's coming? Isn't it a great thing to see? Um, and all the rest of it. Um, it's not just the individual birds. It's understanding that they arrive and depart in our gardens and parks at different times of the year because of global events. Yes. Plus yeah. changes in the climate such as the arrival of the monsoons in certain parts of the world, plus there's changes in the, in the jet stream. So it, it immediately is a lovely conduit to understanding big global issues through these, you know, half a dozen small birds that may arrive on your garden fence quite regularly. So it's a very healthy way of, it, of engaging with nature. Um, it's great. It's, it's always fun to feed the birds. And, uh, and I don't know about, about, about you, Simon, but, but I get a bit guilty when the bird feed is empty. <laughs> <laughs> well we definitely do really you know absolutely and and you know i can be guilty of it of it too you know for for me you know i guess for you it's like turning up without your your, your face mask for me it's getting up in, in in the morning and seeing oh the bird feed is empty you know this is what we do for a living but th that said you know we, we've we change our approach you know recently our veterinary advisor with with avian flu and so on so that's that's you know let's keep feeding the birds but let's do it Let's do it um, responsibly. So, for example, you know, we're, we're, we're encouraging our customers to only put out enough food for a, a day or a couple of days, you know, so rather than, and that makes sense, you know, and, and food is, is, not, is not cheap anywhere, uh, you know, and, and so why put out good quality food that we work so hard to, you know, keep clean and to put it out so that it can attract bacteria and viruses and so on? you know, at a feeding station. We want to be doing good things. But I love this engaging with, you know, you're talking about engaging because you can, and it's the contrast here from one moment, uh, and I'd, I'd love to go back to Rotherham and talk about the wildlife if we can, but, uh, but, but, but what's clear to me, and I'm so pleased we've recorded this visually as well as audibly, or, or audibly which is uh, uh, the audio, which is because you seem to get as much from, the wildlife that you may see in Antarctica, as you do in, in your garden space as well. You just love nature. You can see that. Yeah, absolutely I do, uh, Simon. I mean, you know, rather, I mean, you could walk to the end of the wharf at the end of the runway on the southern side of the base and, and see orca, you know, killer whales, uh, you know, chasing seals and doing the thing you've seen on David Attenborough where, you know, seals oh, on a small ice floe and the orca work together to create waves and, and yeah, do the spy popping first, have a good look around, and then gracefully sort of wash the seal off. Have you seen that firsthand? You, oh, you've actually yeah, witnessed that? Times. Oh. Countless times. Amazing things. Incredible. But on the other hand, um, you know, you can't beat, you know, waking up in the morning, having a cup of tea, looking out the, the front here, and seeing like this morning, uh, we've got, a, we've got, inevitably got a friendly fox that comes around here. Um, underneath our bedroom in the winter, we have a family of foxes that live under the bedroom with a badger. So that's great that they live under the bedroom in the ground down there. Um, and we get deer in the garden and everything. And it's for me to see that literally, you know, 
10, 15 feet away is a wonderful thing. It's just absolutely wonderful. And I think we we might underestimate that in people that that we want to want to encourage people to enjoy their local wildlife, particularly young ones, whatever it takes. You know, it's it's the perfect conduit to understanding uh, very important global issues. And it's just a beautiful thing to do. Yeah, I think staying connected or remaining connected with nature is is uh, is important to us. Some people may say, "Well, you're selling bird food, so that's why it is." But we're selling we're selling bird food because we're passionate. You know, the passion came first, really, that with with you know the founder who who was a a senior, a senior I mentioned before as a senior curator at, at at a zoo, and he wanted to find very clean seed or clean seed because at the time it just wasn't clean. So he, he came up with a, a contraption to remove the dust, which I have to say it's not it's no secret now. It was a tin bath. <laughs> but he cleaned the seed, and, and then the queue f- for the seed, this clean seed, became greater than the queue f- uh, for the zoo. So that's wh- 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 why we do this. But, you know, another thing is that I, that I wanted to mention as well, we, we, um, because we're aligned on this one as well, and it's, it's, about, it's about space. We've mentioned the lakes as well. It's the same in Switzerland, but it could be the same anywhere in the world. You know, our, 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 our footprint... Not just our carbon footprint, but the, the the space we need in our homes or in our works. You know, we're we're relocating, and um, probably around about March next year we'll do this. But I wanted I wanted to share something with you and just get your thoughts really on what what type of things we should be doing, whether we're on the right track. You know, what advice might you have for us? Our project is we're buying about twice the amount of space we need to run our business, which sounds greedy, but it's all space that's been designated to industrial use. But what we're going to do is we are returning around about a quarter, just more than a quarter of the space back to nature. So we call it handing commercial space back to nature. So instead of normal drainage systems around the the, the, the plot, we're going to have, um, we'll have wildlife attenuation ponds. We'll have other ponds where our team can take a break amongst wildlife. And we're going to be looking at planting native species so we can attract the uh, pollinators, we feed the birds. And, and so instead of becoming, or instead of being one of those companies, uh, not naming any names, but instead of being a company that just says, look, this is what you should be doing in your garden. You need to do more of this. We, we thought we better do this and say, look, this is what we do, but not only in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in our homes, but in a commercial setting. We feel that everyone, um, and especially businesses, because we take so much of, of the planet's resources, uh, that we have a responsibility for the planet to do a better job in a, in a commercial setting. But also when our teams come to work, uh, that we feel also that they should be able to remain connected to, to the natural world as well. And I just, I know you're obviously connected at, at Rothera, but it's very hard to create for us to create that. But we think we can do, a, it would be, um, it would be not a great excuse if we said, well, we we don't think it will be easy. No, it won't be easy, but we're, we're going we're gonna to make it work. What's your thoughts? Advice? Anything? <laughs> well, I think it's a great thing, Simon, and, and it's a great example. And um, this is, you know, we're, we're all smart consumers now, aren't we? I mean, we're all so well connected. It's very easy for us to see, you know, do we buy, do we, do we buy this insurance policy or this mortgage or this car or whatever it might be? Do we buy from these people or from those people? And because we all question their values and uh, it doesn't take long these days to quickly go online and see what these people's real values are. And um, 
And I think it's a lovely thing you do there, Simon, because it means you're, you're demonstrating your values by uh, putting putting your effort and resources and, and finances where your heart is. You're saying, well, that's we're doing that. And it, I would say not only, and I, you know, I have to say it's, it's probably a good business move because people are going to say, well, I'll buy that rather than that because I like their their values approach. And it's also going to be such a good thing for young ones and other businesses to see. They see that and go, well, yeah, you know, you're running a good, viable, sustainable business here. And the added value is it's not just a uh, now in a nice natural setting, but that natural setting is giving value back to the planet. It'd be good to see what um, you, you you might get busy there with school groups and stuff coming by. You know, I can admit, you might have your head down trying to get to work and you'll have all these school groups coming around seeing what you're up to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because I, in, in my mind I'm thinking this, this – the, I'm thinking the same actually in a small way because we and, and and I think that's the thing really we've we've all been inspired you were inspired as you say by Jack Stone and others and you know it would be great if we can inspire you know the youngsters to th- take a second look really at nature and, and perhaps it might be something that they come back to I mean I know there's wonderful research out there that says you know that the, the the brain um is is wide so much that if it if it looks at a photo uh, if it looks at a video it doesn't really kind of quite know whether it's been there or not so you they you can get the same feeling uh, yeah. but i also think well that's fine but you know we 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 don't i think if you if if you if you can't leave your home because you know you're unwell and so on then then i understand um you know where that could be very valuable but i also think we need our we need people to go out and explore. We need people to, to be connected to, to nature, not just look at a, an image and think. I mean, I'm looking at these wonderful images of, of the Rothbard, and I can, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, all sorts of things are coming to my mind. I'm thinking about teamwork. I'm thinking about communication. I'm thinking about trust. I'm thinking about all sorts of things, you know, but, but, I'm, but I haven't been there, you know, uh, and, and I, need to, I need to remind myself I haven't been there. And that's why I'm talking to you, because you have this been This is exactly there. it, Simon, because like you say, people these days, we, we can search and find and discover anything from our laptops um, to the sense that for some people, it can feel as if they don't need to go there. Because I've been there, I've seen that, I understand that, I've read all about that, seen the images and films and heaven knows what else about. But we do have to encourage people to do their bit of ground truth thing because, yeah. you know, people think, well, you know, someone's already climbed that, someone's skied that, someone's dived that, I don't need to. But if they haven't, they need to go out and explore it and ground truth it themselves and come back with their own impressions and sense of energy as to what might be a good direction afterwards. You know, with these these powerful experiences Going on expeditions, even if someone's already been there, that's still a great thing because it means you come back with your own responsibility to share amongst your own network. Hey, I've just come back from this place and I've discovered all this plastic on the beach. And it came, came didn't come from there. It came from someone else. Well, of course, if you've, you've physically been there, there'll be a look in your eye that gives you the license to tell that story. You know that feeling, you look at someone on a Monday morning, you look in their office or look at their workstation and there'll be a look about them if they've done something pretty significant. Sort of to the point of going, hey, what have you been doing this weekend? You know, What have you been up to, Simon? You've been on some sort of big adventure. So, yeah, Jesus, you know, I didn't just go online looking at plastic or I didn't just go online looking at overfishing or I didn't go online looking at loss of biodiversity, you know, big global issues. I went to this place and I saw it for myself. 
yeah. and that's the power. So then when you speak to politicians, business leaders, community influencers, you name it, you're speaking from your own personal experience, and that is the powerful moment. So we need people to do that. So we need we need our nature detectives. We need our um, you know we need field work, um, and and these things are you know we need and and probably back to education in a way as well. Really, I think doing my research, I think I I read something where you 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 mentioned um, you know that you felt some of uh, the curriculum, some of education should take place outdoors. Oh, yes, absolutely. I do a lot of work with a wonderful organisation called Learning Outside the Classroom. And uh, I think it's funny that we should even need an organisation like that. I mean, they're brilliant. I think we'd all be happy if they didn't exist anymore because a big chunk of school was already happening outside school. I, I just can't fathom it why, why we don't say, right, we're going to take 40% of all of the curriculum and it all has to be taught outside, whatever it is. I mean, I've skied into remote mountain huts in Norway and thought, oh, great, I've got the hut to myself. And you open the door and there's 30 kids in there. I think, oh, there's 30 <laughs> kids, can you believe it? And the teacher will say, don't worry, we'll, we'll be gone later this afternoon. We're here on the English class. So you go, yeah, you know, you don't have to learn English in a classroom. You can ski to a mountain hut, learn English on the way, learn English there and learn English on the ski back or the walk back. Yes. And you don't need all kinds of amazing wilderness experiences to make it happen you know anywhere in britain for instance you can go to a park you can be outside you can go somewhere outside the classroom and i believe that um, our education system which is really not fit for purpose these days you know something that was invented to get us through the industrial revolution um unless you happen to have tons and tons of money you're you you're jammed into a very old-fashioned school system i think we should learn outside yeah. I mean, there aren't many subjects that can't be taught outside, and uh, I think that should be the norm. I'm a firm believer in uh, learning outside the classroom. I think it's a, that the, the the fear I have, in a way, is 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 that technology, wonderful as it is, and we we we, we wouldn't be chatting now without it. Um, is that I can see that the tipping point at some point where it pots. I mean, let's imagine if the, you know the twelve, thirteen year old Simon King, and he's in a geography lesson. You know, and I'm and I'm falling asleep really at at that point. But th is that me? Is it the geography teacher? Is it the curriculum? Is it the environment? Is it the classroom? You know, if you take me to the Lake District, I'm awake. You know, and and that's a great place to learn. Now, if 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 then they put you in the classroom and there's a broadcast from you, you know, with your wonderful background, which continues to make me think, what have I been doing? <laughs> but I'm going to put that aside because they're my problems, not yours. But I also think then I'm inspired. And so perhaps, you know, the, the opportunity with technology is to put people uh, like yourself, not that there are many people like you, but people like yourself and those wonderful, talented people who are Rotherer and so on in front of in front of our children sooner so we can inspire them sooner uh, and, and so that they can see that there's a job to do here. And it's, it's exciting. That's the other thing, you know, many... Many of our children might think that actually being involved with nature, is it really exciting? But actually, you know, you've already explained orcas, you know, at the end of a runway. You know, what on earth is, if you can't get excited about that, you know, I'm, I'm worried really. But that said, we need bankers. We need other people who can do wonderful other things, you know, who, who need to be, you know, using their brains to do those things. But actually, this is an inclusive opportunity really, isn't it? Well, this is how it works. We're learning outside the classroom is that, you know, People don't have to 
necessarily enjoy it any more than they do enjoy being in a classroom sitting at a desk but the reality is while they're out there they're understanding how to look after themselves a bit maybe it's a bit wet and cold they're understanding how to be responsible in the outdoors and the general sense of being at home and in a and being at ease alongside nature is a lovely thing. So that means that when they become, many years later, chief execs in boardrooms making very smart decisions, the young girl who was learning through the, outside the classroom and she's now the chief exec, she's going to make decisions this way rather than that way based on the fact that she is very at ease in nature. And I think it's got to be a good thing. It's going to influence our values when all these young ones become uh, hugely influential. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. You know, the the, the banker who is has, has got a grounding in 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 biodiversity and so on, why it's important instead of going for that cheap greenwashing plan or, or, or sports washing and whatever we're washing these days can do something that really could make a difference because they could actually have the budget to do it as well. They could That's right. influence think, on a massive level, couldn't they? It becomes a global sort of force of nature when you realise that everybody you see. So if you look at the Prime Minister's questions or if you're looking at uh, BBC Question Time or you're looking at politicians in action or business leaders in action, wouldn't it be great if you could all relax a bit and say, well, actually, we know most of those people out there, 99% of people out there have got a good grounding in understanding nature and how it works. That would be a great thing, I think. And this is the art again, isn't it, really? Your communication skills uh, and so on can be that wonderful conduit between science and, 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 and that bigger budget or that somebody who's in charge of a, a, a huge PLC with three, four, five thousand people or, or a couple of hundred thousand people globally. So that's, that's, that's your challenge, isn't it, really? <laughs> can we, because I don't want to keep you much longer, Paul, because you, you, you're busy, but one of the main things really i've been building up to and, and you mentioned it briefly um is is the uh, the plastic pollution really and and recently we're only about four weeks away from christmas but my wife told me that she'd heard about some research uh, with from the university of portsmouth which said one traditional roast dinner uh, can lead to us ingesting about two hundred and thirty thousand microplastics hmm. uh, and and this is not going to be news to you unfortunately is it you've seen this at the sharp end well, this is one of the great turning points. I mean, I think everybody uh, watching or listening will remember those images of the albatross chicks in the Pacific with all the all the plastic in them. You know, these were young uh, Laysan albatross on the beach, dead with their stomachs exposed. And inside their stomachs, what did we see? We saw images of, you know, lighters and bottle tops and other plastic debris that we're all familiar with, Q-tips and all the rest. Um and that was a big moment for us involved in plastic because people went, ah, what's this? And at the same time, people understood about something called the Pacific Gyre, that there was lots and lots of plastic floating around in the ocean. And this was a big step for us. Then even those of us that are working in plastic pollution, plastic waste awareness, things got a bit flat then because we were still pushing the news and still telling people about it and broadcasting with big numbers and all the rest. And yet... Um, the big step came when we it was proven that microplastics are absorbed into the food chain and that they're in us. 
so we could tell and we measured not we not me personally scientists measured that plastic was in us and i still remember that science paper that proved that plastic uh, micro, uh, small particles travel across the blood brain barrier in fish and that was a big bit of research and then not long later they proved that it's in us and of course you would think wow if there's a you know a single motivational force for understanding the hazards with plastic waste it's got to be the realization that we are consuming it right now and it has all kinds of effects on us many of which are more than likely unknown so we know that it's not good for us and that's been one of the great steps in understanding and oddly enough looking at plastic is one of the great uh, common denominators for understanding other global issues whether it's ocean current or the amount of manufacturing that goes on and and, and people are looking back at the numbers, numbers that we knew many years ago. But the realization that the plastics in us has opened people's eyes. And they're now looking at those numbers. You know, we I mean, I was born in 1951. And since 1950, we've produced about nine billion tons of plastic. And we've only recycled nine percent. And guess where the other rest of it is? You know, it's laying around us and it's in our air and it's in our waters right now so people are looking back at those numbers and going ah, okay we need to do something um, with the big evil being um, single-use plastic we, we're never going to get away from plastic we need it we just need to manage it smartly um, and we that's a challenge on all of us but what is so simple for everybody is to understand that we can all go a long way to avoid uh, single-use plastic it's the single use that's the, that that's the demon really um and and try uh, and i guess you know as an organization we try to remove or in fact we've we've almost we've almost removed all our single use plastics we we're working on a few other um uh you know we're working on 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 some bits and pieces but i'm looking here at a picture i think this is a, this is a, a picture of you at zurich museum of design with the amount of plastic that enters the sea every 15 seconds and it looks to be it's like half a football field or, or more yeah. it, it's it, amazing that blows me away I, went, I, I went there to do that story and uh, the great thing is i thought it might be a bit noisy in there you know in a public museum but because everybody's so stunned it's completely silent in there i mean the numbers that the plastic numbers are amazing is that one yes the zurich museum was a real a real great one and you know, when we look at what the work that the Port of London Authority has done, that's been a lovely piece of work using the Thames as like, look at what's going in the Thames. Yes. And everybody loves the Thames. It's our iconic great river. But by looking at the amount of plastic that goes in there and what can be done to catch it, stop it, change people's behavior, it's been a great way of bringing in the message that we can't. We can't overfill those litter bins on the embankment or anywhere else because it's going to blow in the river. And when it blows in the river, the fish get it, the birds get it, and all the rest, and we get it. Yeah. So I, it's a simple thing to understand when you get to a litter bin and you're standing there with your bottle and your, your plastic wrapper uh, from a sandwich, you can't put it on top of the litter bin. Put it in your pocket and take it home. So there's very simple messages used by, uh, you know, sorry, uh, you know, messages carried by the, uh, the thought of plastic pollution. I think this is something that catches people out because you're right. You know, I think people see there. Well, there's a there's a uh, this is a bin, so it's a, a, a designated place to leave rubbish. If it's overspilling, then I just 
And I, but you know, people, someone will just try and, as you say, leave that that plastic wrapper there. And 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 also, I've I've seen at the side of uh, B roads where there have been bins and the bins have been removed, but actually there are now black bags where people have decided, well, that's a bin space, so I'll leave my black bag. And and I I think people, perhaps, do we do we are we confused about how does this end up in the sea then you know i didn't leave it in the sea i left it at the side of the thames uh, you know so how is it it's not my fault because it's it's in the sea and i've been nowhere near the antarctic so what, yeah. why blame me you know how does that you know well, that's it. that must drive you insane but well i think it does it drives me absolutely potty but and it, and it's it, it's a failure in the education system for not including that kind of stuff in schools and it's also a failure in our social behavior um it doesn't happen everywhere in the world. Um, it certainly happens, doesn't happen much here in Switzerland. When you drive down the roads in Switzerland here, uh, you very, very rarely see plastic on the side of the road. But uh, you drive up the M6 from Manchester to the Lake District, and what do you see going along the road, particularly if they've just cut the grass? Um, tons and tons of plastic. So what is it? What is it about people that, that just throw this stuff around? And uh, I've got no idea, Simon, but um, I think, uh, we're going to have to sort of almost skip half this current generation that do that kind of thing and put our hopes in the future generation. You don't see the young ones doing it, and um, but we need we need a, a way of overcoming. We can look at the numbers. We can tell people, and and I think I've got this right that we that globally we produce a million uh, plastic bottles a minute um, for drink. You know, <laughs> and and the numbers and the vast amount of plastic that's out there. But we're changing behaviour is always the tricky one. Mm. With the Port of London Authority, it worked really well. We did some great films. With the learning outside the classroom, it goes really well. In my role with the Basel Rotterdam Stockholm Conventions in the UN, which is the Persistent Organic Pollutants a group, an amazing global group, and I've got a responsibility there for plastic waste. We're all doing our bit. I can't go to any school in the world where I don't see a plastics project. They're literally almost in every classroom. So we're getting there, but we just have to somehow, as you well said there, Simon, get people to be feeling personally responsible for the plastic they have. And as well as them, sort of double-edged sword, if they can if they can become, if we can become more responsible for the plastic they have, personally responsible, and reduce what's available for single use, I yes. think we'll get there. But we've got to do it pretty fast. And I guess the manufacturers, you know, we're a manufacturers, uh, a manufacturer. We have a responsibility that we, you know, we could, we could. Um, I don't really know a great deal about the, you know, the so-called biodegradable plastics and so on. But what, what what concerns me is the the microplastic situation. Is that just because we don't see, um, or we feel like something is dissolved? Uh, you know, these micro. You know, particles are, are catching everybody out, aren't they? Really, so they, they are. It's sort of out, it's out of sight, out of sight, out of mind, isn't mm. it, Simon? You know, it's a bit like the sea. You know, you you go to the sea, the tide comes in, picks up all the rubbish, takes it out. You go, oh, it's gone. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but, but the amazing but then, you know, six hours later, it comes back and dumps it on the beach again. Yeah, you know? exactly. And and the thing you you make uh, the point you make is that, that this is not just. A f I mean, just you know, if if it doesn't resonate for us with these images we've seen of these the seabirds with you know they've ingested plastics and so on this is now affecting the 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 apex predator which is ourselves 
And I think it's all part of the thing. When I when I think about what we said earlier, Simon, about the, the value of an explorer's mindset, you know, that we're all part of nature, we're out there, that sense of curiosity, getting out there physically to be amongst it, supporting things like learning outside the classroom, which is something that we should all do. We're going to have a, a, a just a, a if we all just have one little tiny click of a shift to make us more at home in nature, more in tune with the planet, then we're going to make smart decisions. There's no doubt about that. And that's what we need right now. Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And, and, uh, but the thoughts only just come to me. So it's, it's, not, it's not preconceived. But I love the idea of the explorer's mindset. I love that. And, and you talked earlier on about, you know, perhaps people will come and, and to our new building and maybe they'll queue up. You know, if we get an opportunity and you're in the UK anywhere near us, you know, it would be delightful if you'd come and talk to us, you know, and talk to maybe, you know, uh, have a think about it. <laughs> but it would be, be there for sure. It would be it, great. And, and Simon, it's just so you know, that's why I jumped at this podcast. I, and I'm, I've got an incredibly busy thing going on at the minute, massively busy. But when I saw a way of communicating, communicating global issues by birdseed, I thought, well, that's flipping great. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we all love birds. We all want to be along. So I jumped at it. So, yeah, please do. I like the whole idea. It made me smile when I got your first message. And, uh, and so, yeah, count on me. I mean, if, will you have a place for tea or something? I'd love a cup of tea when I get there. We have a nice jetty that's over a little pond. Hopefully by then we'll have lots of pollinators around and, we can, and you can hold us to task whether we've done this right or not. And, and, I'll, and, and maybe right. if, if there's a certificate or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I really, I mean, actually, you know, I, you, you know, we need you out there in the field. You know, don't, I don't want to take your time up, but... Um, if if we can tune in with you again, you know, either on the podcast or please, you know, come and see us, um, then I want to really get into this explorer's mindset. Uh, we, okay. we talk about uh, nature detectives, but I, I love this explorer's mindset might be the words for today. You know, even if, and, and irrespective of what field people are going to go to in, into, because you've opened my mind there, if they end up on, in the city, fantastic. But that doesn't stop them from having an explorer's mindset. It might it might change their investment. I'm going to invest in this company because they really mean this. And okay, Definitely. the return might be a little slower, but they really mean what they're saying. So. You're dead right, is... well, you count on me. You've promised me some tea. I'll definitely be there anyway. But, <laughs> but I'll be there. Count on me for sure. Okay, Paul. Well, I don't think there's, uh, unless there's, I'm just plugging my mouse in there. I don't think there's anything. I mean, you know, perhaps I'm. Over to you, really. You know, just a, if there's anything you you'd like to close off and, and maybe just inspire people again. Uh, I love the uh, explorer's mind mindset. Um, you know, I think you've you've set. Hopefully, anybody who's listening to this, Paul, is, 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 you've certainly uh, you've made me think differently. And I think that has been when I go and see a movie, I don't enjoy it. I want my two hours back. I don't want my hour back. You know, it's been well invested. It's very, very kind of you to say so, Simon. I've enjoyed it too. And my final words are all about values, really. I mean, when, when people look and they think, oh, I can't be bothered with this flipping recycling and I'm looking at the news and I'm tired of our politicians and I'm, uh, all the rest of it, you know, social, dis social uh, gaps and, and, and all the rest of it and get frustrated with, with action, either locally, uh, nationally or globally. The way to do it is to look at people's values and think, well, how can I change that? And you can change it by looking at their values and deciding where you buy 
what you buy and who you vote for by looking at people's values. And uh, I dream of the day where instead of me having to hunt for values when I'm going to vote or buy something, so am I going to buy this or that? Well, I'll buy it from the one that's got the best values. Then I'll look and think, oh, well, I'll buy that. It might be it's a similar price, similar performance, but the company have got great values. I love their values. Um, I'll buy from them. And when we're looking at politicians and we're voting people in, at the minute we vote for them because they're from a party or they've got a certain education. I love to see the day when we look at that and I'm online and, and it, it's law that we have to have their values up first. And it says that what their values, you know, that they've spent uh, six months at the front line uh, working on voluntary organizations or they're working in the community with uh, uh, music or arts or social support. Um, they've really been at the front line, not just given money. They've been at the front line doing these important uh, benefits to society. And maybe they're divers or climbers or musicians or, or singers in concerts or painters or whatever they are. So we understand about the people. They're runners, they're you know rowers, tree climbers, whatever they might be. And then finally, then we get to their education on, by the way, I'm in this political party. And I would then know more about the people that were making these big, important decisions than just the fact they were from a certain party. I also dream of this idea that when I'm trying to vote, if I saw one on there without any values, there'd be a big flashing light. You know, brr, brr, brr. you're about to vote for someone with no values. Are you sure you want to do this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think so my final word to everybody is, is check people's values before you do buy or vote for anything. Paul, thank you. I'm Simon King. This is Nature Space with Haith. You've been listening to Paul Rose, who's uh, an explorer, but a, a lot a lot more than that. And I said it was going to be a deep dive, and, but I think we're only at the surface, really. I feel my, my breathing mask is on, feet are in the water. I'm, I've been, you know, in the gym, in the, <laughs> I've been in the canteen, and I'm just about to get very wet. But I've really enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much, Paul. People are going to enjoy this, and you, you'll hear from us again. But, you know, yes, keep well, and thank you. Thanks a lot, Simon. Really great to, to, to run alongside you today. Have a lot of fun. See you very soon. Thank you, Paul. Take care. See you, mate.